Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. The opinions expressed in the program by the host and the guests are their personal opinions only. Remember, feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Managing Director of State Street Digital Assets. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to another episode of Beyond Bitcoin. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and of course, I've got my friend and colleague with me today, Nitin Gower. Hello, hey, Nitin. Hey, Derek. Glad to be here this time, dialing in from Singapore. So really glad to be here. I just landed like two hours. So if, I, if I'm a little loppy and you, you know why that is, the jet lagged. <laughs> You're doing fabulously well. It's a hell of a long trip from Austin, Texas to Singapore, um, but not a bad destination. And you're in my time zone now, which is terrific. That's right. It makes it easier. <laughs> so it's been a hell of a rough ride in the last week. Yeah. And, and I thought we just might take this opportunity to probably aggregate a few of the events and how intertwined they are, and then have a discussion about what regulations are actually in place and what regulations need to be put in place and what's happening around the world. This space needs to be able to get back on its feet with a set of regulations. But let's start with this. And that is the cryptocurrency lender BlockFi um, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection this week. And it's the latest casualty, of course, Um, And the firm was hurt by the exposure to the spectacular collapse of FTX. In its bankruptcy filing, BlockFi said that it owed money to more than 100,000 creditors. The largest creditor is Acura Trust, a company that represents creditors in stress situations. It's owed $729 million. So FTX, BlockFi's second largest creditor, is also owed $275 million. It's going to be a bit of an irony coming through this next part because Digital Currency Group, DGC, is a crypto behemoth. I mean, it's giant, but not many people have heard of it. It's a conglomerate of cryptocurrency businesses, and it flew under the radar until about November 2016 when when its borrow and lending subsidiary unexpectedly halted withdrawals. And that's because Genesis came into play. So, So Genesis who um, is its crypto lending company, is an asset custody also um, for institutional clients. It generates its revenue by charging transaction fees on executed trades and custody client assets. It collects interest from loans and that it's originated, um, similar to a bank. Genesis itself um, funds customers' deposits and loans and also deposits with other companies. And Genesis earns a spread between interest and payment, pretty much typically of a bank. In quarter three, 2022, Genesis originated $8.3 billion of loans. It traded $10 to $20 billion of spot and derivative contracts, respectively, in that quarter. And Genesis had about $2.8 billion of loans outstanding as of 30 of September, 2022. Genesis made a $2.3 billion dollar loan to three arrows, three AC, which represents, are you ready for this? 
47% of its loan portfolio to Boy. one company. That's terrible. <laughs> the loan was denominated in US dollars and the collateral was crypto-linked assets, which, cre- which, created, which was created in value, of course. You know, the collateral was never 80% of the loan value. At most, it was about 60% of the loan value. By the time 3AC imploded, it was 15% of the loan value. So looking at the timeline, this is the sort of thing that unfolds in front of us for Genesis. It's kind of like a dance of a thousand veils. So on November the 8th, it says, you know, we've got no material credit exposure to FTX. On on November the 9th, it said, we lost $7 million. On November 10, they said, okay, we have $175 million locked up with FTX. Six days later, they said, sorry, no longer letting you withdraw and there's no new loans that are happening through Genesis Group. And on the 21st, they said, all right, we need $1 billion or we'll go bankrupt. That's from the 8th to the 23rd. This is so in keeping with your statement about the contagion of incompetence, you know. But part of this is not just Genesis Group, but the very next group is Grayscale. And Grayscale, of course, is a digital currency asset manager, manages the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, among other trusts. Investors can buy shares in GBTC to get exposure to Bitcoin without buying the underlying Bitcoin. Grayscale earns about 2% management fees on the value of Bitcoin held in trust. And in 2023, it had about, it earned about 60, sorry, in Q3 2022, it earned about $68 billion. At its peak, Grayscale was earning $144 million a quarter. And Grayscale owns hopefully, 635,235 Bitcoin valued at about $10 billion. It's at risk because as you realize, Grayscale, as of about a week ago, was trading at about 50% of its face value. Not sure what it is today, but that's a pretty big discount. And that's indicating people are deeply concerned that they don't have a dollar for dollar, so to speak, underlying tie to the assets. The other asset owned by... um, by the um, DCG group is, of course, um, Coindesk, which is a wonderful um, press and media outlet. I always enjoy reading and watching Coindesk. And ironically, on November the 2nd, they are the ones that blew the cover on FTX and Alameda. I mean, they would have had no idea. As I was saying to you before, (laughs) I I bet they were sitting there going, what if I pull this little match here? Would the rest of them fall out? (laughs) (laughs) So, So we're really seeing this amazing contagion. It's kind of, you know, these guys, Genesis, Grayscale, 3AC, they were all intimately intertwined in what you could virtually call a menage de trois. Um, And they were profiting from each other as it goes from one to the other. But these are big impacts to the industry. And and I'm wondering, you know, once this flows through the system, how the industry will reset itself. It it does remind me of that great Ayurveda treatment where you drink a litre and a half of salt water and it flushes your entire stomach and bowel out and you restart everything. It's called a master cleanse. Yeah. Do you think this is what we've had to have? Well, I'll table the Ayurveda, uh, the treatment that you talk about, because it seems certainly like it, that it's involuntary, of course. But I think, you know, to, to, to address a few points, Derek, I think you certainly laid out, you know, as this thing unfolds. And I think if you look at 
that it's not just regulating exchanges, the fallout of FTX fiasco has impacted several hundred hedge funds, as we know. And yes. many entities that were financed uh, either as a seed funding or as startup companies, which FTX took interest in. Uh, and one of them, as you mentioned, BlockFi was one of them, which got a credit line of 400 plus million dollars in the last three AC fiasco that we mm. had. And many portfolio companies invested by FTX, I think the number is staggering 500 different entities wow. who are dependent upon FTX. So I think to me, this is a mm. uh, industry changing perspective. And I think to all the things that you mentioned with Digital Currency Group and its portfolio companies, the Genesis Trading, the BlockFi, um, you know, I think many people through what early on began with Celsius and 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 3AC and now with FTX and related fiasco, uh, they begin to now see what a counterparty risk is firsthand. I think we talk yes. about counterparty risks for the longest time in traditional finance, and there are enough stopgap measures, there are enough regulations to protect that, but not many people fully understood what counterparty risks from a credit risk perspective implies. We also know from this, what is the concentration risk? So this, what the, the menage trois that you described uh, has a lot more than three players, of course, but it's like a circular investment investment paradox where everybody's investing mm. each other and it, it just takes one dominant fall to have a, have a circular effect on all the parties who are involved in that single transaction, uh, which may be as simple as dealing with financial primitives. So I go back to, Derek, the notion of market structure. So if you look at FTX as an exchange and Alameda as a trading powerhouse, needed to be separate, just like a traditional finance. So in traditional finance, the asset management companies, the custodians that keep the assets safe, the exchanges that provide secondary markets, the market makers, they all are meant by regulation and by law to be separate entities because they, you know, and, and this clear separation uh, both in record keeping and personnel. So in many cases, you find companies like, for example, Goldman Sachs or Bank of New York Mellon on State Street, even though you may, they, these companies may be in the same umbrella, they have a clear firewall between personnel and employees and records uh, just to avoid collusion. And ironically, I use, the, I use the word collusion in context of blockchain because at the very fundamental layer of blockchain and the consensus layer, which is really the transaction processing mechanism is meant to avoid collusion. So FTX was doing just that. And of course, for no fault of blockchain and consensus mechanism, which is meant to avoid collusion. Yes. I think the people were enamored by SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried and his charmer or theatrics, and just trusted him with their assets. And there was hardly any record keeping as we come to know now, separation mm. between entities and all the funds were treated as a pool of funds until they ran out. And, and that uh, they had no checks and balances. And I think that to me, was complete lack of market structure. And I've actually, I've written about this twice in the past, we've discussed on this show that, that I think what crypto needs is the market structure. And one way to do that is either going through a, a self-regulated organization or SRO, for instance, or having someone like an SEC or someone, the College of Regulators, as we call them, is a combination of regulation uh, to provide that market structure, which provides the guardrails. And I think if, if not anything else, Derek, this FTX fiasco should hasten that process per se. So I'll pause here. What, just love to get your thoughts on that. What, what surprises me on this is that we, we seem to talk about FTX and how it's intermingled connection with Alameda and the FTX um, investors, right? They're just putting their tokens on an exchange, waiting to trade them. These, these tokens aren't owned by FTX. They shouldn't be owned by FTX and they've got nothing to do with Alameda. And, 
<clears throat> we seem to talk about that and we wave our hand past it. No, 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 this is absolutely fundamental. I mean, we run a fund and we run a typical vanilla fund and it's a Cayman Island-based fund run by independent directors in the Cayman Island, managed by an independent fund manager, administrated by an independent administrator who provides the information. We can't touch that money. We can't get near it. We can't trade it. We don't want to trade it, but we can't trade it. We can't decide, hey, this weekend we might get a good amount on the money market. Why don't we just pop it into our account? This is this is so fundamental what happened there. I'm, I'm stunned that there's actually not already regulations in place that would disallow this sort of extraordinary cowboy behavior where they're just slushing around $8 billion of investors' money. It's not their money, of investors' tokens. Surely there's some regulations that are already in place that, there, that would stop that. There are. And if you look at, again, the notion of collateral and crypto industry is so fluid. I mean, if you look at, first of all, FTT was like, it's like minting your own money and calling it for the longest time. They yes. <laughs> use FTT as their own issued token as a collateral on their balance sheet and say, hey, we have X billion dollars worth of tokens when tokens are really worth less because yes, it yes. indicated value. But in general, if you, in, to your point, right, from, from the fund that you run, there are something called NAV. Uh, and then, you know, you have a valuation on, on a nightly basis, on a daily basis. Uh, in the traditional finance world, if you're using something as a collateral, the value of collateral is regularly computed to ensure that either we do a margin call or you need to have additional collateral to meet the lending uh, requirements that you've taken. So if I'm borrowing against gold and gold, gold value goes down, I'm either asked to replenish um, the, the collateralized value or uh, pay back the loan. And, and some of these things are systemically in, induced. Mm. Uh, obviously, in this case, one, massive concentration risk, handful of companies doing this with each other. Uh, mm. and, and, and I think in many cases, there was another article that I read, which talked about the fact that many of the assets are more, you know, hypothecated more than once. So I'm collateralizing an asset, yes. you further collateralizing an asset. It's, it's more like a CDO problem that led to the 2008 financial crisis. The same asset is collateralized multiple times. And that multiple eventually works great in, in bull market, but in bear market, when you really need the liquidity and on the underlying asset itself is now needed to be sold. Yes. Find the domino effect really, really taken into effect, which I think all leads to the gamut of challenges uh, that we need to address in crypto space because crypto, unlike a single jurisdiction, these are global systems. Bitcoin is a global system. Ethereum is a global system. ERC, any of the tokens that emanate from them are global systems. And suddenly now you're not dealing with just a market in United States, a market in Europe, a market in Australia. These are global markets, but just because you're running a business in one area or one jurisdiction, uh, I think it opens up a whole new can of worms, which I think we should spend some time today in, in addressing the bookend problem. Like, what does it mean, especially in FTX? FTX registered in headquarters in Bahamas and not likely impacted by these investigation. FTX has various US connections. The founders are Americans. They dealt with American funds. They dealt with Americans. They borrowed money from Americans. They you know, and at some point, the SEC and DOJ, Department of Justice, need to assert jurisdiction only because there were so many Americans involved, regardless of where you were registered. And the same question came up with Binance. Binance is not, doesn't have a global headquarters. And so they are registered in some jurisdiction. The question then becomes is, are they taking advantage of the regulatory arbitrage, which is the fact that let me go and find favorable jurisdictions where I can get some licensing while they may not have all the measures in place to provide investor protection. And 
that licensing gives me some level of comfort mm. to raise funds and attract investors, while that licensing jurisdiction may not have the right protective measures uh, to address the, these market structure challenges that we're talking about, I think. So there's a little bit of that. I think we should mm. certainly, at least the regulatory uh, body should address that from, that from that point of view. It's interesting because this is, you know, really these exchanges are transitional technologies in many particular ways yeah. because we've already got um, the likes of Uniswap and SushiSwap, which are peer-to-peer swapping of tokens. They're decentralized exchange operating off algorithms. You know, everything is a known quantity. There's, there's, there's no fraud there. It's just simply an algorithm-driven exchange. And it can trade anywhere 24-7 all around the world. Well, you know, in the likes of the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ and the Australian Securities Exchange, et cetera, they're domiciled and they're siloed in their country, but you can access them, you know, if you're a fairly high-end trader through online trading systems. But in this particular space, all of these companies' tokens offerings are all around the world. And you've got centralized exchanges that can be in a variety of places. So you can see how it's broken down from what was the traditional way of siloed exchanges in a country which operate under a single regulation to exchanges now trading things all around the world. But the damn things are still centralized. But <laughs> during this period of time, they've got to be centralized, but they've got to have a set of regulations that gets around this ability for them to establish it in the Bahamas and operate it out of there. Um, that's what you're talking about here, I assume. Yeah. And you know, I think Derek, if not if not anything else, and I think March was three AC Celsius uh, Voyager. The entire fiasco blew up, um, and mm. every time you have a new contagion or you have a new fraud, uh, fraudulent sort of scheme being surfaced, the multiplier is exponential. Like now, it's thirty-two billion, which you've added a few things. That suddenly now, hundred million doesn't seem like a lot of money per se. But if there's anything else that comes out of this. It will hasten the process of regulatory clarity. Essentially, mm-hmm. in my career, as I'm dealing with digital assets and other areas and trying to understand this, I'm not a lawyer by any means, but because we are in this space for almost a decade, you get to be pulled into a lot of these conversations that you've seen most of the regulations are around two things, activity and instruments that dictates the jurisdiction and regulatory domain. For example, what is security and how do you define a security going back to the famous 1930s act um, hobbies, tests, and everything else, which is old, mundane, but it's still the you know the law of the land. Commodities and payment instruments, and broadly, uh, so in many cases, by defining the instrument itself, you define the activity around it. That then has the regulatory framing and the, and, and 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 the jurisdiction, whether it's SEC or CFTC or FinCEN, whether it's payments or commodities. Or, mm. or the respective corresponding entities in, in, in respective countries. But regulation in general are put into effect for two fundamental reasons, right? One is fiduciary responsibility, that now you have the market structure and now you're relying upon borrowing and lending and you have custodians and you have the asset managers. They all have a fiduciary responsibility, as you rightly said, Derek, uh, giving example of portal asset management, that there's a responsibility for every part to make sure that you know, they're not misusing or misappropriating funds and they have responsibility towards the investors. And yes, there's a fee structure tied to it. That's the business model. Yes. And the second thing but is- the interesting thing about that responsibility, just for one second, is that even if we became irresponsible, we have no ability due to the correct. structure 
of the independent managed fund to be able to tamper with the funds. Correct. I would have thought that should have been in place for you know FTX and its 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 traders. And after all, it was generating probably as the second biggest exchange in the world, and the margins in these exchanges are very high. It must have been making fabulous profit. Um, yeah, and you know, you, know, if, you know, I actually have an opinion on that. But before you know, two things: yeah. one is fiduciary responsibility, and second thing is prudential treatment of assets. Yes, is around the asset safe guarding and accountability and ensuring there's enough liquidity in the system to meet short-term obligation. A lot of regulation require you to have certain liquidity, which is inefficient use of capital. The money is sitting there, but mm. that's a regulation that you have to keep that money sitting there because in, in, to cover the assets and that's the potential treatment. What I don't understand in this case of, of course, FTX and Alameda never follow any of these things. One, because there's no regulation that requires you to do that, which by the way, in the US, you do have something called SAB 121, which is for traditional, and get this, this is for traditional financial institutions. Mm-hmm. If you're keeping a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin, you're supposed to have a billion dollars worth of uh, capital on your on your balance sheet, which is a huge mm-hmm. trapping of liquidity. Yeah. But it, yes. it doesn't apply to crypto entities because they're not registered as a custodian or as an asset manager or as an investment manager, any of the sort of capital market structure that's in place. Uh, and this is a US only thing, which means that if you're in Bahamas, then Bahamas doesn't have any of that sort yes. of structure in place. What I don't understand is, you know, FTX as an exchange. So look, as an exchange, if you're able to provide the right price point, right liquidity and have the right market makers, which Alameda was doing to a certain extent, you're collecting rent. I mean, it's, you're just a transaction fee. It's a great business model to be in because you're not involved in any of the other. Yes. And Alameda was, of course, they were doing all kinds of wrong things. And I just don't know why yeah. couldn't they throw Alameda under the bus? And still save FTX because there's a lot of good tech out there. And of course, you later realize they had all backdoor entries for exception from Alameda and everything else. I, d- I didn't understand that as, and maybe it's just maturity of the founders and everything else that by keeping them separate while they had it separate, why couldn't they just throw Alameda under the bus and just keep FTX? Because that's easy rent. You have a system in place, you have enough. Yeah. So I, I, I th- that is something which I... I I'm guessing at this particular nexus, they couldn't keep it because they'd, they'd stolen the shareholders, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, the investors' money. And so therefore, it, it all went into administration. But the point is that this is the second largest exchange. They're highly profitable. If he just operated that exchange, you know, with the correct guidelines and 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 just traditional regulations on ex- exchange-traded assets... It'd be enormously profitable. What he does with Alameda is another issue. He could be highly risky with that and, and take take great risk. And that that might have gone to the wall by now, but it would only be a contagion within itself. It wouldn't have taken down the, the million creditors that um, FTX took down. Um, and, and that's why I scratch my head about this. And, you know, I say, really, there wasn't any regulations covering covering investor money. I mean, surely there's regulations covering that. Um, but if there's not, there certainly needs to be covering a crypto exchange. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure whether it's the subtleties. You know, if I look at uh, an exchange sheet, I might have a page. It, it will have Bitcoin store of wealth, Ethereum, well, you know, utility token store of wealth, currency, then it'll have Ripple currency. And then it might have DOT, which is more of a utility token blockchain that generates you know, these are different type of assets, but they're all traded exactly the same way on an exchange. Maybe that will be a challenge for the incoming regulators that they that they might want to divide up all those assets 
into different categories. Um, or maybe they'll just simply say, we'll treat them like stock. And if they trade, then the exchange must operate under certain circumstances. But what I'm hoping is that these basic regulations come into play for, as a start, um, because that will bring this back. It's interesting because we have talked about counterparty risk now for nearly three years. Um, and, and in a booming market, it's a dull conversation. True. That's very true. No, no, that's, that's absolutely true. And I think, um, you know, to, to me, I think the amount of conversation I've had on counterparty risks, in many cases, in traditional finance, and I, in my last job in IBM, I was doing this, you know, model risk management, model risk frameworks, MRFs, and we had counterparty risks, we had credit risks, but they were line items. Like we, we didn't expect that to happen, but we factored, we factored in events that can go wrong in terms of in, inability mm. for a counterparty to meet their bar, end of the bargain or meet their end of the commitment in terms of producing capital on time or, or, or the fact that somebody has committed capital and for you to be able to make a capital call. We factored those things in. What happens when you have this counterparty risk? But the chance of that happening was very low. Uh, in crypto space, it seems like it's a daily thing. Any scam happens, it's all about counterparty risk. It's all about yes. concentration risks. So it's interesting. And I'll also say this, Derek, that as we discussed again on, on this show, uh, that there are 40 bills in Congress around digital assets. Yes. And still undecided. What's interesting is most likely the Congress is now looking at a bill called DCCPA. Ironically, the bill that SBF supported and was written prior to that in the upcoming year is going to be revisited again. And uh, But what I have learned again in Europe, uh, EU has the crypto asset regulation called MICA, which is you know, agreed between the European Commission and the European Parliament and the Council for European Union. MICA is perhaps the first, in my opinion, comprehensive regulation regime that, you know, specifically tailored for crypto assets. And it's also Europe, being Europe with 27 countries under EU umbrella, accounts for about 25% of global crypto activity. So it's quite sizable, I would yeah. say. And then it's, it's to me, it's, it's generally things like, you know, defining categories, defining classification of tokens, defining the right regime, defining the registration of these entities. They've at least have the right, more comprehensive element to say that if you're issuing a token, then it, is, it has to be classified in a certain way. It has to have the right, exactly to your discussion, Derek, uh, who's the counterparty, who's held responsible, who are the entities, do we know enough about these entities before uh, all meant to provide the right sort of information with the right risk models. And of course, in Asia, you have MAS, it's, I'm in Singapore at the moment, uh, and, and India, which has gone more towards taxation and retail protection around retail users, which in some cases have some protective measures and holding the exchanges accountable, which is what India had done, which actually has curtailed a lot of frivolous investment uh, claims. Uh, Singapore and Europe has also talked about the claims that people have made uh, by having celebrities uh, endorse these companies, which is again, mm. coming into focus in the US as advertising uh, and false advertising, which entices many of the uneducated users. So the, all these to me is comprehensive, but I think you know, US being the largest financial capital markets could take a lesson from Europe and try to have a much more comprehensive regulation like what they have attempted with MICA. So the very first thing a set of regulations have to do is it really has to define, doesn't it? It has to absolutely define yeah. exactly what the, the asset is in this particular case that they're going to regulate. And once they've got the definitions in place, then they can lay down the rules of regulation. What do you think MICA's standout um, regulations are that you think are impressive? 
So to me, a few things is one is categorization of it. We've always debated, again, going back to activities and instruments, but they don't know what's a token. If, even if you look at Coinbase, which is, again, it's a public company, it has stocks, it is Twitter and NASDAQ, and it has MSB licensing, MSB is money service business. So they have they've gotten 50 licenses in 50 states so they can move just like a money transfer office like MoneyGram would do, right? But they're doing a lot more than moving money, right? They are prime brokerage, they are custodians, they're doing all these things and it's still under the mm. same umbrella. Mm. So the thing about what MICA has done is put categories to say, hey, if you happen to be a token that's issued by a centralized entity, then you should look into something like a security regulation because now you're tied to, and if you happen to be issued by a centralized entity, you need to have an office, you need to have a registration, you need to have officers in, in the country that you're operating in, uh, at least in, in one of the 27 countries that's, that's part of Europe. Uh, it also has liquidity requirements. It also has the fact that if you classify this token, you're under this jurisdiction. So looking into saying that you, we already have enough regulation, the ESMA, which is the um, their market structure, uh, and and is is if you're dealing with existing token types, then you can go under those regulations. But if you have new token types, you, if you're totally truly do cent, uh, decentralized, then you have a new regulatory element. So I think some of these things are exactly addressing things like counterparty risks, addressing adequate information. Uh, so FTX shouldn't happen again. The people should know that FTT token is a security because it represents a stake in FTX. And if that's being used as a collateral, then, uh, you know, I think you cannot, like, I don't think any modern day corporation can use their own stock in, as a part of the treasury. It's never happened. You don't use mm. your own un, uh, you know, outstanding share as a part of your treasury. Yeah. You using as a, there's a whole process to, to raise money using equity uh, or, or as debt. And, and Michael clarifies some of that, that whole element around it. So I think that is what I mean by comprehensive sort of model that should be, you know, having the right structure, having the right definitions, having the right, and it's not necessarily having an entirely new you know, agency, but I also want to caution this, Derek, that while we're doing all this, if we were to have the same structure that we have today for existing financial assets, for crypto assets, then what have we really solved? So let's not throw the baby with the bathwater. Let's try to understand the disruption and the advantage of the technology per se. And that's why I think the industry is so focused on not going after founder worship and going back to basic. This is going back to Ayurvedic treatment, like it's a great purge that you mm. cleanse everything and you start. It's a, it should be a great, we should treat this as a great reset and mm. going back to where we started 10 years back. So it certainly sets exactly. the industry back, but I'm hoping the new builders, the new generation is much more resilient and much more thoughtful of how what they're building. And so you're going to the Hill, as it's called in Washington, um, in just a couple of weeks time, I think. Uh, and you're going to be meeting and talking about regulations there. Now, and of course, in early January, the Republicans take control of the House, and they are a lot more pro-regulation um, around cryptocurrency, I think, than the existing uh, Democrats have been. So uh, do you feel optimistic that in the early part of the year, new change that are control of the House, that we might see movement on regulations in the House? Yeah. So I'm not a very political person, Derek, but I think this, because it's Sam Bankman-Fried, who, as mm. you know, has made many appearances in the Congress and who's talked mm. eloquently, and you had Maxine Waters, the chairman of Finance Banking Financial Committee, blowing kisses at him. And uh, <laughs> these are all memes that are happening there. And and I think it's hit close to home, mm. uh, both in terms of lawmakers, this is the Congress, um, and also in terms of regulators. 
uh, a lot of controversies again in terms of you know Gary's Gary Gensler, you know, and and SBF's dad being MIT and 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 the relation they had. So I think to me there is now a need only because it's hit so close to home and it's almost mocking the lawmakers, uh, which I think again when I say it's going to hasten the processes to say if we don't do anything, at least the the U.S. government and and the U.S. jurisdiction. Because right now, all the tools that the existing regulatory agencies have, which is the SEC and CFTC around commodities and our securities and, and, and FinCEN around payments, uh, they're simply applying those because they're not, they're empowered yes. to regulate, but they don't have yes. the power to make new laws. That's lawmakers' responsibility. Absolutely. And that's an important thing for people to understand. They often get, will get annoyed with Gary Gensler, turn around and say, you know, there's, there's some connection or isn't this terrible? He's a policeman. That's right. That's what his job is. He's just a policeman. It's the law. It's the lawmakers that make the law. He just polices it. If they change the law, he'll police it differently. That's right. So it's not up to him to categorize. He's saying, hey, if it looks like security, I'm going to treat it like security because that's the law he has to follow. Yeah. So being the top cop at SEC, that's his job. And same thing with uh, top cops at uh, you know, Austin Benham at, at, uh, at CFTC and, and the right agencies. I think that lawmakers to define, that's what Europe has done with MICA. Mm. And that lawmaking is an important part, I think. In absence mm. of which, there will always be confusion. And I don't think regulators should be in business of, of crafting laws. Regulators should be just enforcing them. They're not in business to, to, to create their own as they wish. Uh, you know, they're supposed to follow the regulation to the T. And yes, there's some interpretive element to those things. But, but again, law, it's, it's up to lawmakers. The buck stops yeah. there. That's right. And that's when confidence will come in for the larger investors. You know, on that note of confidence, I mean, this is a big bash. You know, what we saw with Three Arrows and Voyager and uh, this was, that was a, and and Celsius, um, that was a a knock to the industry and the price reflected accordingly. But it's interesting how sitting, standing back up again, the industry's had a much bigger knock this time. And, And confidence has been knocked. The brand has been damaged. The irony is, the whole damn industry was created. All the technology was created to avoid just this. Yes, Bitcoin yes. was created in 2009 to avoid the calamities of the um, of the CFDCs at the time, and and that that was terribly important, and 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 it caused, by the way, a global contagion that makes this little blip look absolutely insignificant, um, which, was, which was the global financial crisis. Yeah. Um, so, so the reason this industry was created, more to the point, not the industry, but each one of these technologies was created, was to avoid this centralization. Decentralized finance in so many ways of, you know, works very effectively at doing that. The challenge with DeFi, of course, is that it's a new, tech, it's a new rationale of thinking relating to wallets, and how to do the transactions. And it's going to be something that generation C, the crypto generation, is going to be, you know, very au fait with, but the rest of the rest of the, the, the users are, are still struggling with. Um, so irony, ironically, it's getting brought to its knees. Um, and it's getting to have to look at itself in the mirror based upon a centralized finance collapse. Yeah. And so that's just a side statement. But what's important is that is that I think the brand's been impacted, and our view is that um, is that retail is probably going to be out of this space as active participants for the next twelve to eighteen months because they'll be licking their wounds and reading the newspapers, which you know is so often aren't correct in how they analyze this. 
not with intent, I just think not with knowledge, you know. Um, but at the same time, the institutional investors and the more sophisticated investors, they're watching it in great detail. And I guess they're watching for a couple of reasons. And that is the industry is now less than a third of what it was, um, you know, 18 months ago. And it's back to, to, you know, 2020 and sometimes 2018 levels. So they see investment opportunity there, but they're also watching it, waiting for regulations to come through. Do you think that's going to be their prime trigger, the regulations? So I've this past few weeks have been quite difficult, at least in my thinking, Derek. I certainly, it's interesting times. We On this show, we avoided talking about FTX because there was so much noise happening and we had to address mm. it add-on today. Mm. But we focused on other global macro issues. Like mining issue was an issue where you have energy mm. and massive impact of mining business due to downward pressure on Bitcoin. Bitcoin is not... Uh, the, the value of Bitcoin and, and, and the amount of energy that goes into making the Bitcoin has a huge issue, which led to, which is going to lead to 12 to 13 different entities declaring bankruptcy, which is a huge issue because that's the raw material going into production of this asset, right? Mm. Then you have the global macro impact on the institutional entities, which is the liquidity challenges, downward impact on liquidity per se, which is preventing institutional investors, which was a lion's share of liquidity coming into the system. Unemployment, as you may have seen, due to the inflationary pressure, pressures and, and central bank actions, uh, is also impacting retail investment, uh, has a downward impact on liquidity. And then you have this FTX, which has a ripple impact on not only global macro, due to global macro, but also crypto macro, which has a chain effect on many startups and adjacent industries that we discussed here. So I'm at a loss of words sometimes, Derek, that I'm generally an optimist. I, I like to, and I've always said this before, that, you know, we learn from our failures and we, we build upon our successes. But it looks like we got to go back to basics. And if you look at the crypto Twitter, it's now going back to basics, going back to build, not going after, you know, worshipping founders and going after, you know, not your keys, not your, not your token ethos. Yes. of the industry and going looking into making that process a bit more simpler because right now that's the biggest impediment as you may have seen so to me i i go back to your first thing that you mentioned the ayurveda treatment uh which is the the purge not the ethereum purge but the ability <laughs> for you to cleanse your system i see this ftx is cleaning the bowels of the crypto industry and and it's a it should be a great reset which will hopefully put the set the industry while it's at the industry back a few years, I hoping I'm hoping it sets the industry on the, on right tracks this time. Yes. Well, if it, it if it helps at all, um, you know the market has been going sideways, not down for the last couple of weeks. Um, Bitcoin at sixteen and a half or so has proven to be quite resilient. Now, of course, that can break. Um, but Ethereum has been sitting at eleven and a half to twelve. You know, sorry, eleven hundred to twelve hundred dollars. There looks like there's some degree of resilience in it. A lot of the algorithm calculations relating to the value of Bitcoin are suggesting it's well and truly oversold. So there's some, some interesting numbers there that maybe the professionals will start looking at. From our viewpoint as a fund, you know, we've had three redemptions and they're only small. So the more sophisticated professional investors are going, it's volatile. Volatile means it goes up and it also means it goes down. So it's a matter of investment horizon. So what's it going to look like in 12 months' time? What's it going to be looking like in 18 months' time and two years? Well, I'm very confident, my own view, and as I said, never investment advice on this show, um, that you know, in 18 months' time, when you're looking at this in the rear vision mirror, you'll be sitting there going, why didn't I? And, and 
The reason why is because there's so much uncertainty around at the moment. But the bigger vision groups are actually investing in it. And at our next Beyond Bitcoin, and you're um, going to be away at that time in a conference, I think, um, next week, um, we're going to be discussing with Jamie Coots from um, Bloomberg um, just the level of opportunism that the big in institutional investors are taking in this space over the last four or five months. It's intriguing. You know, they're deploying more into the space while the space is, is so, um, uh, well, you know, reduced in price and, and somewhat more vulnerable. They're looking at it going, well, this is a way of us deploying in, into the space. It's intriguing. So we'll discuss that next week. So, you know, on, a, on the bright note side, you know, as you say, the cleanse occurs here. Um, this is a centralized finance issue that re re requires regulation. Sure. There are new, um, you know, views in Congress next year um, that, that, you know, I think have demonstrated that they're more proactive in this particular space. So we may see something come to fruition early. Um, and, and I think the, the early investors, return investors in this space have already demonstrated themselves to be institutional. I think um, the retail groups that are retail investors, my guess is they're going to stay out of this for some time and lick their wounds as they read the local newspaper that tells them about yeah. you know, the woes of this space. What are your thoughts? No, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it certainly has a positive. I'm, I'm believe, I believe in crypto, of course, so has, have, having spent, this is purely... Uh, you know, this contagion of incompetence is for few individuals is not the industry per se. And I think this, I've also said this on crypto Twitter, that this eclipses efforts of many who've been trying to shape the industry in their own little ways, yes. whether it's technology yes. or whether it's business models or whether it's entrepreneurs. So I don't think this should be reflective of them. Yes, these are massive failures and the building should continue. It's so interesting. We used to have conversations about Web 3.0. We used to have conversations about artificial intelligence and right. edge computing, which is extraordinary utilization right. of these high performance phones and other things we've got into, into decentralized computing systems. We don't talk about that anymore. The whole thing is consumed by this discussion. So that time will come back and this time will pass. Um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that day, I've got to tell you. But in the meantime, from as far as um, those listeners, we'll do our best to keep you up to date with what our views and what we hear in the space, what regulations are getting proposed, because Nitin's going to be at the coalface very soon on the Hill. Um, and next week, as I said, we'll have Jamie Coots in from Bloomberg, and we'll be discussing, you know, the macro view, but also this, this sort of statistical analysis of what's happening with Bitcoin at the moment, quite interesting through a graph-driven world. Nitin, where are you next week? Next week, I plan to be in Manila, in Philippines, um, mm -hmm. and I have some conference, some events, and I'm actually, as a give back, speaking at some of the universities and meeting some of the students. Uh, and the reason why Philippines, because one, I was invited. Second thing I think is that I find a lot of momentum and a lot of uh, enthusiasm in terms of new usage and what they're thinking. So I want to be able to embed myself in that thinking for some time. Um, so that's, that's next week. And then the week afterwards, I'm back to the U.S., Terrific. Well, that's great. And the week after that, we're back together again. So have a great journey. Travel safely. Um, as a reminder to everybody, if you've got any questions, suggestions, ideas, feel free to share them. We're always delighted to hear them. Look after yourself, Newton. Thanks. You too, Derek. Take care. See you. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. 
If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please contact Nitin Gower or myself on the emails displayed here or via our LinkedIn profiles. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week.